I trust you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving, or at least you were thankful, whether you were having a good time or not. You guys all right with that? Okay, two of you had a good time. Good. That's great. We'll try to do better next year. This morning I had the privilege of opening God's Word in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. But as you begin to read through the entire book of the Gospel of Luke, in the opening words of his Gospel record, Luke tells us that he wrote this, why he wrote this. He wrote this, he investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write out for us, for his readers, in an orderly sequence so that you may know the certainty about the things you have been taught concerning Christ. Isn't it great to know that God has given us His Word so that we could have certainty about our Savior? Luke's purpose for doing so centers on the gospel throughout the narrative. That is his main focus throughout the narrative, in fact, and he does this in three ways. First, Luke defines the content of the gospel. He defines the content of the gospel. Luke also then defends the credibility of the gospel throughout. And then Luke declares the gospel over and over, and we'll see that today as he records the work of Jesus Christ in our text. Friends, repentance and forgiveness of sin is at the heart of this entire narrative, as I mentioned, and this morning we get to see this glorious example. For context, let me give you some background here so we can all stay on course where we're going. Up to this point, Jesus has taught that His kingdom, His kingdom will arrive one day in the future when He returns in glory as the Son of Man. But when asked the question about when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replies in chapter 17 of Luke's gospel, the kingdom is already in the midst of you. What's taking place here? What Jesus wants them to understand is that for an unspecified time, the Son of Man and His kingdom will be veiled and hidden visible only to those, catch this, with eyes to see. That is, those who humble themselves and receive Him as a little child, or like a child, or in a childlike way, a simplistic way. Those who do not have eyes, in contrast, are those who do not repent. Though the Pharisees and the crowds look for signs, they refuse to respond in repentance uh, to the signs that they were given. They kept wanting something else rather than what they were being shown. Why is this? Because of their own self-righteousness. Why does anything prevent us from doing what God wants us to do? Generally because of our self-righteousness. And here, they will not accept true righteousness because they're so self-righteous. They will not accept the righteousness that comes from God by faith alone. For a time, even Jesus' disciples did not understand because they were kept from seeing. Until when? Until their eyes were opened by the risen Christ as he explained scriptures to them later on at the last chapter, chapter 24 of Luke. Now this morning in Luke 19, we are introduced to this man named Zacchaeus who was seeking to see Jesus. This theme of seeing continues to carry on from chapter 17 and 18. There a physically blind man in chapter 18 sees Jesus, the son of David. He can't see, but he knows This is the Son of David. This is the Christ. And he is given sight by Jesus. 
actual sight, physical sight. While Zacchaeus, a spiritually blind tax collector with sight, is given eyes to see salvation in Christ. That's the picture we see. Let me ask you to turn in your Bibles to Luke 19, Luke 19, and we'll be looking at, we'll be reading verses 1 through 10 while you are making your way there. Jesus, so you know what's going on also, the big picture is Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem for the Passover once again, healing and redeeming people along the way. Though he made this journey many times to Jerusalem in the past, this trip, which actually began and began being recorded in Luke 9, so for 10 chapters now, is in preparation for his triumphal entry, death and resurrection. Let's take a look at what we see in chapter 9, excuse me, 19, verses 1 through 10. He entered Jericho, that's Jesus. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran, he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it full fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came, came to seek and save the lost. title of our sermon this morning, you may see that in your worship guide, is Jesus Summons Sinners. Can you guys say that for me? Jesus Summons Sinners. That's right, the subtitle is the, actually verse 10. I love that. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. We're going to look at four points this morning. The first is a bit larger to set everything up. And then we'll see it's that the, the, um, sinners seek Sinners seek something in 1 through 4, verses 1 through 4. Jesus summons in verses 5 and 6. Critics grumble in verse 7. Of course they do. And Jesus seeks and saves, verses 8 and 10. So Jesus summons sinners. Sinners seek, verses 1 to 4. Jesus summons, verses 5 and 6. Critics grumble, verse 7. And Jesus seeks and saves, verses 8 to 10. Let me give you the main idea of this passage that is always helpful to keep in mind as we're going through. And I'll try to remind you of that as we go. Salvation comes to sinners who see Jesus when he summons them to receive him. Let me say that again. Salvation comes to sinners who see Jesus when he summons them to receive him. Let's take a look here as we begin our sermon. Jesus summons sinners at our first point, sinners seek, verses 1 through 4. 
<coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> and Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. I want to point out that word behold. Many of you probably already know what that word means, but behold in any text is meant to enliven a narrative and arouse the attention of the readers or the hearers of what's going on. It's meant to introduce something new or something unusual. And what we're about to read, as we've already read, but as we're about to learn, something new and unusual is taking place uh, in this narrative. Now, Jericho, the, the city of Jericho, would have been an excellent location for a tax man because it was a main train, trade route to Jerusalem. Man, if you're going to be able to tax somebody, you want to be on the main drag. Would you agree? Apparently no tax people here. Okay. In Jesus' day, tax collectors were hated. That's why you kept quiet. Tax collectors were hated. They were despised and considered spiritual outcasts, not even worthy of salvation. As a businessman, Zacchaeus would likely have had employees, probably many, of empl many employees, to do the actual collecting of the taxes at this point in his life. And then what he would do is give out whatever the Romans expected. Now, he would teach his tax collectors to charge whatever they wanted, because they were probably stealing too, but he would, he would get more than his fair share before he sent what was required to the Roman government. This made Zacchaeus a wealthy uh, man and a high-ranking man, not only in his field, but also in his community, ranking high in class, not necessarily in love, right? Now, could anyone during this time who's in this big crowd watching Jesus enter Jericho on this gorgeous spring day have guessed that this man, Zacchaeus, a tax collector, was about to do what he did? Let's take a look at verse 3. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So there's a big crowd, he's a shorter man, and he cannot see Jesus. He wants to see, who is he? Who is this guy? What's going on here? He wants to see Jesus. Now, let me ask you a couple more questions. Was his wealth and lifestyle not enough for him, do you suppose? He could have been sitting by his pool or whatever, whatever rich texts in the first century in Jericho do. He could have been doing all kinds of things, but for whatever reason, he wanted to see who Jesus is, who he was. Did what he had in his lifestyle no longer satisfy him? Lack of satisfaction is what drove St. Augustine to Christ. Let me read a quote from, his, from Augustine's, or Augustine's Confessions. A sense of unease made every pleasure unfulfilling. So he's laying out what life was like as a non-Christian, an unredeemed person. Augustine writes, a sense of unease made every pleasure unfulfilling. Nothing lasted. Your goad was thrusting at my heart. A goad is a sharp pointed stick to get animals or in this case people to move in a certain direction, right? Your goad was thrusting at my heart, giving me no peace until the eye of my soul could discern you without mistake. That's all of us if we're redeemed, right? Beautiful. So something's going on in Zacchaeus. Dare I say something supernatural that God is doing 
that he is not expecting, but seems so natural in his mind and the way he's going about it. Verse 4, so what does he do? He can't see Jesus, and he's longing to see him, so he ran, verse 4, on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. Now, imagine this wealthy man with obviously some sort of fame doing this public act in front of all these people, right? What a desperate situation or how desperate do you think he was to know or see Jesus? And he was in a hurry not to miss him. Jesus is passing by. He can't see. The crowd's probably getting more excited and shouting all kinds of things. We don't see that in Scripture, but we've seen that in other passages when Jesus comes into town. And so they're trying to get a glimpse of him. Everybody wants to see him, and he can't. So he runs to this tree because he wants to get up into a position uh, to be able to see. This certainly would have been a better vantage point for him. But again, a very undignified position to find himself in with his rank. Sometimes things like that can keep us from Christ, can't they? But despite, to, but, but uh, desperate to see Christ, the tax collector's actions indicate more than curiosity seems to be at play here. Would you agree? Something's going on here. When we look at verse 3, I asked you, when we were looking at verse 3, I asked you the question, why is Zacchaeus curious about Jesus, Right? It is clear by the text he wants to see who Jesus is. It's not that he wants to see who he was, but literally who Jesus is. Who is this guy? I don't want to just get a glimpse at him. I want to know who is this guy. He wants to truly know who Jesus is. Of course, sinners of all kinds, uh, uh, sinners seek all kinds of things for all kinds of reasons. What's his purpose behind this? We see this throughout the text, but we don't know if we're just pausing here for a moment. Many times people don't run to Christ for salvation. We know you cannot run to Christ for salvation without the Father intervening. What do I mean by that? Well, John 6.44, would you turn there? John 6.44, if you have it memorized like some of you probably do, you don't have to turn there except for by example to those around you. So the Gospel of John, verse 6, excuse me, chapter 6, verse 44 the first part of the verse. We're trying to state here, we're making it clear that you don't run to Jesus for salvation without God the Father intervening. And Jesus confirms it here in 644. No one, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Do you believe that? Yeah. Amen. Why must the Father draw a sinner? Why can't a sinner go on their own? I mean, aren't we smart enough? When I was a brand new Christian, I was sharing the gospel. I could not figure out for the life of me. I would go through the gospel. Do you know that God is holy and righteous? Yes. That you are sinful and flawed and broken and you need a savior and you're on your way to hell? Yes. Do you know that if you repent of your sin and put your trust in Christ, you could have eternal life and be freed from this life? Yes. I understand what you're telling me. All right, let's pray. I don't want to. And as, as, a, as a young, immature believer, I thought, how could you be so stupid? How could you not want eternal life from the true and living God? Don't you want those bricks pulled out of the bag and tossed? Don't you want to be free from the sin 
that ensnares you and is damning you for eternity if you do not repent? I couldn't figure it out. I was very frustrated as a young man trying to evangelize. So we asked the question, why must the Father draw a sinner? Why can't sinners go on their own? Because Scripture is crystal clear about how God operates, how God works throughout Scripture. For example, Romans 3.10. Romans 3.10 through 18, if you're taking notes. Paul writes this. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. Hmm. Now that makes more sense to me, right? No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now that makes sense, doesn't it? That makes sense to us as Christians. Simply put, man is a slave to sin and unable to believe apart from God, God's empowerment. For some deeper study, let me give you some more verses to look up at home this afternoon or over lunch. Romans 3, 1 through 19 in its entirety. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. 2 Timothy 1, 9. I'll repeat these for you. Romans 3, 1 through 19. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, and 2 Timothy 1, 9. Like Augustine, the Lord is clearly goading Zacchaeus toward Christ. Gloriously, it is, gloriously, Jesus summons sinners, which is what we're about to see. No matter what sinners are seeking at the time, when Jesus summons, we respond one way or the other, right? To summon means this. We're looking at Jesus' summons in verses 5 and 6. To summon means this. It's defined as a person of authority demanding one's immediate presence. Have you ever summoned anyone before? How many have tried to summon, like your children? Yeah, I get it. I get it. <laughs> Take a look at verse 5. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. What? You, you saw me? You see me? <laughs> Though Jesus had been passing by, he stops. And he calls Zacchaeus down from his perch. Surely everybody is looking at this scene around him. Zacchaeus' desire to simply see Jesus is now, he finds himself hugely surprised by the fact that it's Jesus who actually wants to see him. Are you guys tracking with that? 
He's thinking, I want to go see what this guy's about. And Jesus says, you need to see who I am. But Jesus does not want, excuse me, but Jesus does not just want to see him. Think about this. The incarnate Christ, the maker and creator of everything, does not say, hey man, I'm thinking about staying with you tonight. Thinking about hanging out with you this afternoon. Hey, can I come over to your place? No. He doesn't say anything like that. Jesus states in no uncertain terms. And it's very powerful, as I'll share in a moment. I must stay with you. In Luke, there are a few times that he uses this word must. And it is used to indicate that it is a divine necessity of what's about to happen or what needs to take place. And so what we're seeing here is the divine necessity for Jesus to dwell with Zacchaeus. Jesus' encounter with Zacchaeus was a divine mission, and his seeking of Zacchaeus was a work of God's sovereign grace. So what does Zacchaeus do? Listen to verse 6. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Jesus had prepared Zacchaeus to be ready to receive him. And Zacchaeus responds immediately. No ifs, ands, or buts. Boom, he runs joyfully. What we begin to see at this point in the narrative is that Zacchaeus, seeking to know who Jesus is, and Jesus, seeking to know who Zacchaeus, sorry about this, who did this? Oh, I did, sorry. (laughs) Can we start over? What we begin to see at this point in the narrative is that Zacchaeus, seeking to know who Jesus is, We see that happening, and we see Jesus seeking of Zacchaeus, and both were the sovereign works of God. The crossroads of their lives at the sycamore was a work of divine providence. It's just a tree. It's just another guy. He's a tax collector. Hmm. Don't you love that God saves sinners like us? (laughs) Once again, what is impossible with man is what? Possible with God. The main idea of our text this morning is that salvation comes to sinners who see Jesus when He summons them to receive Him. We note that sinners seek and that Jesus summons. And what do you suppose grumblers do? Yeah, what we often do, grumble. Well, we're going to be... Fixed of that, I hope. In stark contrast to what God has done, the crowd is offended, offended. This fickle crowd is now offended. They're calling out to Jesus. They want to see him. They want him to stop, all these things. Now they're offended because of his intention to stay with Zacchaeus. Our point here is critics grumble. And when they saw it, when they saw what Jesus did, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. That's pretty powerful. 
to be hearing people saying that. The crowd's response is characteristic, of course, of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who opposed Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners back in chapter 15. Now they all grumbled. You got the Pharisees, you got everybody. You got, you got the people grumbling. And they complained that Jesus was consorting with a hated sinner, somebody they despised for ripping them off and being so pompous. As is often the case, grumblers grumblers do not see their own need of salvation or their own sin while they're grumbling. They don't see, in this case, their need or the purpose for a Savior to come to their town. Just like when Israel grumbled against God in the wilderness, the crowd proves its own sinfulness as they grumble because of Zacchaeus' past sins. Do you, let me ask you guys a question, serious question. Do you, like me at times, so we're in the same boat, maybe you're not in the same boat, do you, as a redeemed person, do you still grumble about other redeemed people? Right? We slander, we gossip, we grumble, we talk about others, we're upset with them. That's a problem. We're sinning. We're clearly sinning. I want to read to you, I didn't bring the book, but um, I have printed out here something from the Gospel Primer, Gospel Primer, um, written by Milton Vincent. We have given those away. We offer those. We uh, encourage you to read them. They've been the book of the, it's been the book of the month. Uh, number 13 is talking about being stimulated to love others. So now I'm talking to believers here, right? And, and unbelievers to see that it's possible to actually love people who aren't lovable. When my mind is fixed on the Gospel... I have ample, did you catch that? When my mind is fixed, not on them, not on me, not on what they do or don't do, not on what I do or don't do. When my mind is fixed on the gospel, I have ample stimulation to show God's love to other people. For I am always willing to show love to others when I am freshly mindful of the love that God has shown me. Don't you love that? Also, the gospel gives me the wherewithal to give forgiving grace to those who have wronged me, for it reminds me daily of the forgiving grace that God is showing me. Doing good and showing love to those who have wronged me is always the opposite of what my sinful flesh wants me to do. Agreed? Nonetheless, When I remind myself of my sins against God and of His forgiving and generous grace toward me, I give the gospel an opportunity to reshape my perspective, to put me in a frame of mind wherein I actually desire to give the same grace to those who have wronged me. Isn't the gospel's power beautiful? Wouldn't you love for everyone else sitting here, including myself, to to give you this love and benefit and care when you mess up like you do? Well, we want that from you when we mess up like we do. And we want to be iron sharpening iron, drawing one another closer to our King, our God, who has sovereignly redeemed us. What a joy and a treasure it is to be more and more Christ-centered 
And it's, and it's a highly perishable skill to stay on that point, isn't it? Why? Because we're bombarded with the cares of the world, our own sin nature, and, and, and all the things that beat us up and knock us about. Friends, let me encourage you to think through what we're talking about and the power of the Lord and the gospel and how Jesus summoned you not to leave us the way we are. Would you agree? But to make us more like whom? Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, our great God, indeed. I just, I just love this passage showing us God's grace, His power, and giving us hope in the midst of the ups and downs of life that we get so easily ensnared in. So with that stated, Zacchaeus, nonetheless, we see, shows himself to be a true child of God. How do we know? We know by what is written next. Let's take a look at verses 8 through 10 under the title, Jesus Seeks and Saves. Zacchaeus was seeking to see Jesus, needing to know who he is. Jesus summons him. Critics bark and grumble. And Jesus saves him because Jesus sought him as he sought you. And if you're not redeemed, I pray he's summoning you now. Verse 8, and Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, there's that word again, something's going to happen, something big, this is important. Lord, you think this is big? Listen, the half of my goods I give to the poor. Now, this is not telling you to do that. This is giving an example of what this man, his idol was money, like the rich young ruler. And remember, the rich young ruler said, mm, I can't give up my money and follow you. Jesus knows what we need to give up. And maybe that is you sitting here. I don't know. But Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone, you think this tax collector defrauded anyone? He was rich. Need I say more? And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, anything, I restore it fourfold. Fourfold. Hebrews are told to restore things 20%. He's going to go fourfold. Four times whatever it is. Not 20% of whatever it is. Four times of what he defrauded people. This is a radical, incredibly radical contrast between the repentant Zacchaeus and the rich ruler, as I stated. In effect, Zacchaeus lived out the command that had early, earlier caused the rich young ruler this grief. When Jesus told him, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. As a rich, rich tax collector, Zacchaeus had the power to defraud many people. And suddenly he longs to make it right. Is there anything that you long to make right, but over time there were too many opportunities for it to get put back and back and further? And you just, man, I tried to reach out, I tried to call, but I'm just going to let things go. Bygones be bygones. I think we have a good example to think about, at least pray about, you know, are there folks that I need to make things right with in my life? I claim to be a Christian. I want to live in that beautiful comfort of Christ's gospel on a regular basis. 
preaching to myself and others these wonderful declarations of Scripture? What must I do personally to make things right with someone? Then he says he's the remaining 50% he's going to make restitution of for. Zacchaeus turns from his dependence on wealth to dependence on what? Think about it. He's depending on his wealth. It's clearly not meeting everything he hoped it would. Eventually it does that, right? So he, where's he headed? What's he thinking? Jesus turns his dependent on wealth to dependence on God's grace. God's grace. If there's any doubt about what God has done, Jesus summarizes things to make it very clear about what's taken place in verse 9. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house since also, since he also is a son of Abraham. By his outward actions, Zacchaeus reveals the inward change that has taken place. He is a new creation in Christ. And as such, he is also a true son of Abraham, right? Not just by, not just by being a descendant, but he is now a true son of Abraham in that sense. The just shall live by faith. That's what Abraham did. That's why he's now a son of Abraham. He is walking now by faith, trusting in God. Verse 10 tells us our subheading and really the key to Luke's entire gospel. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Before I go further into this, um, when we're lost, we don't really know we're lost sometimes until it's too late. Who's great with directions in your family? Okay, so you guys are lost a lot. <laughs> but there's no worse feeling than feeling lost. Lauren and I were, uh, for our 40th anniversary last year, we went up to Page, uh, Arizona, and then we went to the Grand Canyon, and it was just wonderful. But we started hiking around Page, and I had a general sense of where we were at but we started to get overheated really quick. And I realized we had to get back quickly and I didn't have a route in mind. So I decide I'm gonna start running up this red rock hill at 190 years old, in the heat, dying. I may have died, I don't know if I'm really here or not. But, uh, and so I'm running up this hill to get to the truck as fast as I can to cool it off. And as I get to the truck and I'm cooling it off, Lorna comes to the top of the hill. What route did she take? She, she meandered to the, to the truck and I was completely lost. And for a moment it was a scary feeling because we were being overwhelmed by the heat. Being lost is no fun. Being found when you're lost is glorious. Here we read, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Now. The Son of Man is often considered an expression of humility. We think Son, 
son of man. We think in families, you know, dad's the one that's the boss and the son's not as powerful yet and those kinds of things. I've heard those things about Jesus, which are not true, by the way. But we tend to think of Jesus calling himself the son of man as an expression of humility, even on his part, as he became a man. But the fact is this, listen, this is important. His title as the son of man is a claim, when he uses it, it's a claim to his divine authority. He's God. He has ultimate authority. And in and is his messianic title used in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, 14 when Daniel sees Christ's ultimate victory of the kingdom for which we are all heading. You see, Jesus is the Son of Man, the divine authority who came to seek and save lost souls to Himself. For some of us, we may be newer Christians. We may have been a Christian for so long that we've already kind of checking out. But let me encourage you to think about what one must do to receive salvation. And if you're redeemed, part of the reason I want you to be able to listen is, or want you to listen, is so that if you're not clear on the things that are important in the gospel, you understand how to share the gospel and what's, what needs to be there, okay? So, what must be done to receive salvation and for the miracle of the kingdom to come into a person's life today to take place as graciously as revealed in our text with Zacchaeus are four clear areas. Now, of course, there's bounty of many within those, but let me, let me share these. First, Jesus had to die and be resurrected. Okay, check, done, happened, right? Second, as revealed in our text, the person must be given sight. Sight to see truth. Sight to understand and know who God is. Eyes to see what's going on. Not physical sight, but spiritual sight. Does that make sense? Third, there must be a response to Jesus' gospel. God is holy and righteous. You and me and mankind are sinful and flawed. God in His graciousness, Jesus Himself became a man, lived the sinless life, the perfect life, the life that we would only hope to be and we would certainly enjoy one day in heaven in perfection with Him. But He came and lived the perfect life and then suffered the death that we deserved, not only the physical death in that sense, but the spiritual death that took place, separated from the Father in that sense, right, and punished on our behalf. So what do we need to do? We would need to simply repent of our sin, put our trust in Christ and Christ alone, and live for our King in the way that we're seeing Zacchaeus do. Not giving away everything, but with this newfound excitement and joy of who we are in Christ and what we get to do. So with that said, again, first, we need to know that Jesus died and was resurrected. Some people might not believe that. Second, as revealed in our text, the person needs to have sight. Third, he or she must respond to Jesus' summons. I thank the Lord that I can look back over my life and know that there were many times, and I didn't think about this until years after I was redeemed by God, that there were many times that the Lord sent people to share the gospel with me. And I felt like I was okay with God. I wasn't doing the dirty dozen or nasty nine as much as everybody else, so I think I'm better and I'll be okay. And then by God's grace, He summoned me 
and commanded that I received him. And when God commands you to receive him, you don't say no. You can't say no. Fourth, there must be evidence that the first three requirements have taken place. Agreed? You all right with that? How's that going? Is there evidence that those three things have taken place in your life, right? I'm not trying to beat you up. I'm trying to challenge you. You guys still turkeyed out? Okay. It's okay. I get it. I am too. What does the evidence of that look like? The person's joyful, glad reception of Jesus, accompanied by wholehearted repentance. Wholehearted repentance. It's, it's those little sins that, yeah, I'm doing 99% better. There's that one, though. I kind of, it's just my thing, you know. Gives me approval. It's a little idle in my life. Gives me comfort when I do it. Gives me a moment. That's got to go. Like we see Zacchaeus. Dropped it all. Gave it all away. Doing whatever God wants. This work of salvation guarantees that even the most unlikely sinner will be included amongst God's people. This is the sovereign work of the Son of God, or the Son of Man, excuse me, on earth. His divine authority to save. For the Christian, I think it's important for us for application here that we constantly pray for God to be opening our eyes or for us to have eyes to see Him truly and to work His truth out in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives. We can forget to pray that because we get comfortable. And I can tell you personally, as, as I've gotten older and I've been let down more and more by people and hurt by people, people I've trusted and loved and given them my life, man, it gets easier and easier to stay on the couch, doesn't it? It gets easier and easier to not run towards those issues. Wouldn't you agree? Do you have things like that that are keeping you on the couch? If so, I pray that this sermon this morning, Zacchaeus' zeal for Jesus and serving and living for Jesus would be a great encouragement to you. And if you need more help than that, I want you to know that the elders are here and available to serve you, and you can call the office, and we want to care for you throughout the week. If you're not redeemed, Though I've shared the gospel and, and, and I'm hopefully you'll have conversations with those around you, please call the office. I would love to meet with you and hang out and, and, and just, uh, I know all the elders would, just to share with you. But I believe with all my heart that each of you would do the same this morning, wouldn't you? So Jesus summons sinners. Thank the Lord that you were summoned. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Sinners seek. Are you a sinner seeking this morning? I hope so. I hope you're seeking. I pray that you hear the Lord summon you this morning. I pray if you're a grumbler that you repent and stop grumbling. And that you would just fall madly in love with our Lord. That's my prayer for me if you want to know how to pray.
because he seeks and saves the lost like us. Would you pray with me? Father, it's exciting to see your work in the lives of our people here, our friends, our loved ones. It's exciting to see your work in our families. It's just glorious to see you work so sovereignly in Zacchaeus' life. We're grateful for your kindness to us this morning in giving us sight. And we pray that you would use us to share things with others as you're calling them to yourself, that they would run to you and that you would use us more and more to serve you, to share your gospel, to love others, to preach the gospel to ourselves and to one another, to remember who we are in you, that we may be excited and enamored with your beauty and grace. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.